Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another special episode of Work in Progress, where we'll be continuing our video series, Need to Know. As you may know by now, each week I am sitting down with a different expert to get answers to your most pressing questions about what is going on in the world right now and what's happening with this pandemic. Yay, science. Today, I am so excited for all of you to hear my conversation with the wildly impressive and inspiring Esther Odakunle. Esther is a biochemist, neurobiologist, and antibody engineer currently working as a scientist within the Biofarm Discovery Department at GlaxoSmithKline, where she is focused on exploring antibody selection as a first step in the drug discovery and development pipeline. Beyond her work as a scientist, who is quite literally helping to make life-saving medications, Esther is directly involved in science communication and public engagement. She regularly speaks out on racism in academia and science and is passionate about using her platforms to uplift the marginalized and underserved while encouraging an increased visibility of diverse STEM professionals. In my conversation with Esther, we discuss her life growing up in the UK, her education and career path, her past work with Starfish, and future career goals for exploring unmet medical needs, systemic racism in the science community, how Esther is adjusting to working from home during the COVID-19 crisis, the current pandemic, and so much more. Enjoy. Well, Whip Smarties, we are in another installation of our Need to Know Science Investigation series on the podcast. And today I am so excited to be joined all the way from the UK via Zoom, of course, by Esther Odakunle. You are a biochemist and a neurobiologist and an antibody engineer. Can you talk to us a little bit about 
what that means. I'd, I'd love to know how you communicate the science of what you do to us folks who don't have PhDs, yeah. <laughs> first and foremost, really. Um, where do I start? Okay. Um, well, the biochemistry part comes from my undergrad. So I did my undergrad course in biochemistry. Um, so during college, I wasn't really sure which route to go down. And I literally made the choice of, I like biology, I like chemistry. So let's mix them together and just do an undergrad in biochemistry. Um, mm. And that was mainly around, so biochemistry is studying the chemical reactions in biological systems. So it's mainly looking at proteins, for example, and how they function in healthy individuals, but also how they can misfunction in disease models as well. Um, mm. So that's kind of where I started. And I was really interested in that. And then, um, yeah, during my bi biochemistry courses, I actually had some neuroscience lectures and that kind of really drawed me in. And that's what I found most interesting about my course. So from there, I was actually able to do a final year research project um, with my neuroscience lecturer. And that actually turned out to be the foundation for what my PhD would be in. And that was looking at like these, I guess, brain proteins called neuropeptides, um, specifically mm. in starfish, which is a bit weird to some people. Um, so yeah, just trying to understand that system in starfish um, and also like a worm model as well. Um, mm. And then pretty much halfway through my PhD, I realised that I wanted to apply my skills to discover medicines. And so that sort of led me to then transition into the pharmaceutical industry. And mm. in the pharmaceutical industry, um, there are different types of medicines that are being made. So you have what's called biopharmaceuticals, which would be something like antibodies, or you can have like small molecules as a drug. So um, so I found myself working on antibodies and yeah, here we are now, I guess. <laughs> so, so when we think about COVID-19 and, and, you know, SARS-CoV-2 being the virus that causes the disease, is it true? I've, I've read that it's a, uh, you, you could call it a smarter virus because of how transmissible it is, how easy it is for people to pick up, um, not dissimilar to SARS or MERS, but that this particular strain of coronavirus has reached pandemic proportions because it was first an outbreak and then an epidemic and now a global pandemic because of how easily it travels, which essentially signals to scientists that the virus is quite smart. There are other viruses that are even more deadly when caught, but they don't transfer, they don't transmit at nearly the rate of SARS-CoV-2. So how does a virus learn to be smart? Is, is that something that it has been evolving into? Uh, are scientists surmising that it's been working on this in, in whatever place it came from, you know, in, in its zoonotic jump? Why is it so easy to catch? That's a good question. Um, I mean, what I would, what I would say is, I mean, yes, people talk about sort of the evolution of viruses. I think for me, mm. I kind of see it as, you know, there are, you may have heard of, you know, random mutations that occur. Mm -hmm. 
um, in viruses and some of these random mutations could lead to the virus being um, you know, more able to be transmitted to other people. And mm-hmm. I think it's just a case of, I mean, again, I'm not a super expert in this area, but I think it seems to be a case of, you know, having these random mutations and the ones that mm. do cause the virus to be transmitted much more easily um, mm. or be or be more effective in, in infecting people would be the one that is then um, carried through the population. Now, we obviously need to talk about vaccines in terms of COVID-19 because that's really on everybody's mind. But I'd actually like to go back to some more simple science and communication. What even is a vaccine? Can you walk us through it? So a vaccine is a substance that stimulates your body's immune system to fight against and therefore protect you against a pathogen. And a pathogen is anything that causes disease. Now, being naturally Mm. infected by a pathogen, let's say a virus, would also stimulate your body's immune system. But getting that immune protection will mean getting the disease, which could come with some pretty nasty symptoms. So the benefit of a vaccine is that it imitates an infection and therefore provides immune protection against the pathogen without causing the actual disease. It does this by exposing your body to a non-disease causing form of the pathogen, which triggers your immune response. The immune response triggered by a vaccine will typically involve the production of specific immune proteins or cells that are critical for removing, neutralizing and removing the pathogen. And this means that if you are then exposed to the actual pathogen that causes disease, you will already have the immune protection through the immune proteins and cells needed to fight this pathogen at a faster rate. Depending on the effectiveness of the vaccine, it could provide full immunity, which would mean you will not be infected when exposed to the pathogen. Or if full immunity is not possible, it could lessen the severity or duration of the infection. I find it so helpful to understand exactly how vaccines work in the body and how they help to make us immune to diseases that otherwise would be life-threatening. So thank you for that very clear translation. And then I have a question. Because COVID-19 is a novel virus, we've never encountered it before. That means we have no natural immunity. There's nothing in our bodies that have created antibodies to fight a pathogen like this. Is that why it can be so fatal to people who contract it? And that's why all scientists around the world are collaborating on trying to find a vaccine as quickly as possible? That's definitely one of the reasons. Um, Yeah, as you said, um, our bodies haven't seen this virus before. So if we are infected, you know, some people will have, you know, really horrible symptoms. And in some Mm. cases, it can be fatal. Um, I think it's important to note as well, as we've seen, different people react differently to the virus. And, you know, things like, you know, people having other health issues can definitely cause Mm -hmm. um, worse outcomes for um, when they have been infected by the virus. Yeah, I think that's really helpful to understand. Uh, A doctor friend of mine explained it in the following way, which really sort of sobered me to the severity of this. He said that COVID-19 essentially operates as an investigative grim reaper and will analyze your system and find any weak point and attack you through it. So someone like me, for example, who's had lifelong asthma, but it's never been dangerous to me. I've always been able to manage it with medications. It could prove fatal in my system because my lungs are 
in terms of COVID compromised, but not compromised if I don't get COVID. And that, that was really something that helped me clarify how severe it can be for people who otherwise have no kind of severe illness. And it really sort of shook my shoulders. Yeah. Now, when we talk about vaccines and and you walked us through how they work. You know, they expose your body, as you said, to an antigen. That's what triggers your immune response. They can either provide immunity or lessen the severity of an infection, which with a fatal disease like COVID is so important. Do vaccines all work the same way or are there multiple types of vaccines? So there are four major types of vaccines. Um, You firstly have what's called whole pathogen vaccines. These can be whole bacteria or viruses or parasites that cannot cause disease because they have either been inactivated with chemicals, radiation or heat, or they have been weakened. In their inactivated or weakened form, the pathogen either cannot replicate as well or they cannot replicate at all in order to cause Mm. a disease. These types of vaccines typically produce strong protective immune responses and most therapeutic vaccines have actually fallen into this category, but they can be Mm. relatively harder to make or they can take longer to develop. The second type of vaccines that we have are called subunit vaccines. These are components or fragments of a pathogen that the immune system can still recognise and fight against. As you're only using the essential components instead of the whole pathogen, this type of vaccine might minimise side effects. Um, However, including only these components tends to produce relatively weak protective immune responses compared to whole pathogen vaccines. And in such Mm. cases, some additional ingredients or proteins are added to give that extra boost to your immune system. The third type of vaccines are called toxoids. So some bacterial diseases aren't caused by the bacteria themselves. They're actually caused by the toxin that the bacteria produces and releases. Therefore, you would want your immune system to protect you against the toxin rather than the bacterium. In these cases, an inactivated form of the toxin, otherwise known as a toxoid, is used as a vaccine. And the fourth and final type of vaccines are nucleic acid vaccines. So nucleic acids can carry genetic information, for example, our DNA, and they are needed to produce proteins in all living things. These nucleic acids, as I said, they can be DNA, but they can also be RNA, which is a different type. Many of the structures on pathogens that trigger our immune system are proteins. So instead of scientists making these proteins in the lab and then injecting them into patients, nucleic acid vaccines are used. They introduce either the DNA or the RNA that codes for that particular protein from the pathogen into your body. Your body then uses its own cells to read through that nucleic acid and make that specific protein. Once the protein is made, your body can then recognize this as something that it needs to fight against with an immune response. These vaccines are newer and presently only a few have been approved for use in animals, not humans. Um, However, they are much easier to develop and manufacture compared to other vaccine types. In terms of the COVID-19 vaccines in development, many of them are nucleic acid vaccines that code for a specific protein on the virus called the spike protein. And um, others are also whole pathogen vaccines. 
I'm honestly just fascinated with the work that generations of science have done to lead us here, where you're capable of producing so many types of vaccines that can literally teach our bodies to fight a virus so well that it can't replicate inside of us. It's it's a pretty fascinating time to be alive. Yeah, for sure. And I think just thinking about how vaccinations used to work or the primitive version of it, which was called variolation, where they'd essentially, mm. you know, take some scabs from someone who was infected, let's say with smallpox, and then giving that to a healthy person to try and elicit this immune response. Coming from that to where we are now, it's just mind-blowing. So can you talk to me a little bit about who is protected when someone gets a vaccine? Because there's a lot of conversation out there about herd immunity, about creating immunity. You just referenced that vaccines can either create immunity or a good enough immune response that you won't get a fatal version of a virus such as COVID-19. So how how does this sort of larger protection structure work in terms of vaccines? Yeah, well, first of all, you are protected when you get a vaccine. Um, because vaccines mimic an infection, as you said, you can develop immune protection without actually contracting the actual disease. Um, and as has been said, um, depending on the effectiveness of the vaccine, you could, you could either be fully immune or you can have less severe symptoms. Um, but also what we're hearing about is long COVID, where people who mm. were infected months ago are still experiencing symptoms such as mm -hmm. crushing fatigue and lung damage months after. So having a vaccine, even if it doesn't provide full immunity, um, it can still protect you from horrible symptoms caused by the disease. But secondly, other people can be protected when you get a vaccine. If vaccination leads to full immunity, this means even if you are exposed to the virus, your immune system will act fast enough to clear the virus before it has a chance to replicate and cause disease. And it's possible that the fast action of the immune system ensures that you aren't harboring any infectious pathogens in your system that can be transmitted to others. But there is a caveat here in that this all relies on having a vaccine that is effective enough to provide full immunity. Right now, we are mm -hmm. racing against the clock. And so the first available COVID-19 vaccine may not provide full immunity, but could protect you from severe symptoms. This means that even if your symptoms aren't so bad, you could still be infected and carry infectious particles and therefore be able to transmit this to others. And in that mm. particular case, the vaccine would only be beneficial to you and not others. Mm. And that's part of the reason, would you say, that it's so important that when the vaccine becomes readily available, everyone take it? Yeah, 100%. I'd probably say everyone eligible to take it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It, it, it does bear clarifying that there are some people who aren't able to take vaccines. Cancer patients, for example, who have very compromised immune systems cannot, you know, uh, depending on the age of a child, they will or will not be able to get a vaccine. So it's really up to us, everyone out there who's healthy and capable to do it, because it really is how you care for your community in the same way that we've been out there wearing masks. This is about community protection, not simply just for you. Do you have any guidance to give on the question of once we have a vaccine, how long will we need to continue social distancing and masking? 
that, will that be part of the fight against the virus even once the vaccine launches? Yeah, I think it's important to set the expectation that the first approved COVID-19 vaccine may not be the most effective one that we will ever get. It should mm. be safe. That's the whole point of these clinical trials. But it may not provide full immunity. Mm-hmm. And if it does provide full immunity, for how long? You know, booster shots may be needed to maintain a level of immunity that could reduce the spread mm-hmm. of the virus. Therefore, as of now, the expectation is that there may still be a risk of transmission if precautions such as social distancing and wearing of masks are removed as soon as we have a vaccine. Um, Quite a few vaccines are being developed at the moment, and it could take months after that first approved vaccine for others Mm. that are better or more effective um, to to be approved, maybe ones that do provide full immunity and for a longer period of time. But right now, we just don't know. And Mm. to complicate things even more, different vaccines with different levels of effectiveness may be approved in different countries. And so, Mm -hmm. number one, I don't think we should expect that the first arrival of a vaccine would mean we are all safe and should stop social distancing and wearing masks. And number two, depending on the vaccines that are available country to country, this would determine whether it's deemed safe to start relaxing any kind of social distancing um, Mm. rules or restrictions. It also strikes me that what you're highlighting, that different vaccines may be approved in different countries on different timelines, also means that we really need robust contact tracing. Because if vaccines begin getting approved by the end of 2021 and travel resumes and people are moving around, we need to know who's been exposed, where they've been, what communities they've been interacting with to make sure that the agencies that are tracing outbreaks have data as quickly as possible, correct? Yeah, 100%, yeah. And mm. I think another concern there is that with we are looking at an issue when it comes to production and widespread availability of the vaccine Um, which could create a bottleneck, especially when it comes to countries that aren't as wealthy and can't pre-order hundreds of millions of doses. So this means Mm -hmm. that even aside from the different types of vaccines, there could be a stark difference country to country in terms of the vaccination rates because people may not have access to it. And so Mm -hmm. I know there are conversations right now with different government agencies around making sure that people from disadvantaged backgrounds aren't being left behind, but until yes. we can guarantee that that's that everyone has access to the vaccine worldwide or different types of vaccines worldwide, we should still have some strategies in place to monitor, trace and hopefully reduce the spread of the virus. Mm. So it's a multi-stage coordinated effort. It's not just about masks. It's not just about vaccines. It's not just about distancing. It really requires all of these things to be happening at the same time concurrently. Yeah, 100%. Mm. So can I ask you a clarification question? If the early vaccine only protects the individual who receives the vaccine, will more people getting the vaccine actually help us learn about the vaccine and its efficacy and create more effective vaccines as time progresses uh, to eventually hope to create a vaccine that does provide full immunity? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, so, so with the, so for example, right now they're doing the stage, uh, in some cases they're doing phase three clinical trials. 
And in that case, mm-hmm. they, are, they are actually going to be monitoring people over the course of a few months and up to a year, maybe more. And so I think mm. we, we, need to, we need to monitor people in order to understand how their body is reacting to um, and fighting against um, viruses through the use of vaccines. And by understanding the immune response, this may provide um, other strategies for making potentially more effective vaccines. Um, currently, there are nearly 200 vaccines that are in development at the moment. So it could be that one of these that are already in development may actually provide that full immunity. But right now, we just don't know at the moment. So we're kind of just going with one that mm. we can get out really fast that can, um, you know, at least um, lower the severity of the symptoms. But hopefully there will be some mm-hmm. um, protective immunity over a long period of time with it, too. Mm. That's something that's really striking to me is the conversation around safety, because there's a lot of people out there who want to claim that vaccines are not safe. But that is simply untrue. That's not ever been proven by any kind of data. And and the source of that accusation has actually been debunked multiple times. But it feels to me like the disinformation has become a bit of a runaway train. How will any anti-vaxxers decisions not to get the COVID-19 vaccine impact other people or overall human health around the globe? Yeah, I think it comes in twofold. Um, As we've seen, this pandemic shows that individualism isn't going to help us fight the spread of this virus. Hmm. So the decision of anti-vaxxers to not take the vaccine can first endanger them themselves as they may be susceptible to the virus and therefore contract the disease, possibly with all the horrible symptoms. But their Mm. decision also puts the health and lives of others in jeopardy too, because if they are infected with the virus, they can then transmit that to other people. But Mm. along with their decision to not take the vaccine, um, it's also been noted that anti-vaxxers may also share misinformation on vaccines, which could discourage others from taking the vaccine. It's all well and good having an effective and safe vaccine, but if people don't take it, it won't be effective at all. And Mm. our hope is that with a vaccine, we will see a drop in transmission of the virus, which Mm. will mean hopefully drops in COVID-19 cases. And this will mean that maybe things can start to go back to normal, but all of this can be delayed even longer if when there is a vaccine available, not enough people actually take it. So I think Mm. those are the impacts that anti-vaxxers and misinformation can have. So I'm very curious if you can explain a little bit about why vaccines are, in fact, so safe. I, I tried to go down the rabbit hole to figure out where the disinformation was coming from. And a lot of it was about, you know, unsafe trace elements in vaccines. And I saw a doctor put it into clear terms where he said, sure, if you were exposed to a high dose of mercury, it could poison you. But if you've ever eaten a piece of fish for dinner, you've had more of a trace amount of mercury than you've had in all the vaccines you've ever gotten in your life combined, which felt like an obvious and excellent fact to combat some of this disinformation. So what do you think are some of the key points that people who are suspicious of vaccines need to know? As has been said, um, there are a lot of concerns around the ingredients in vaccines. And I think a lot of people have already shown or the data does show that 
in terms of, um, you know, trace ingredients or elements that people may think are harmful and that may be harmful in very large quantities. When it comes to actual vaccines, they are negligible in their amounts. So they shouldn't and don't cause um, any adverse effects there. Um, so, yeah, so in terms of timelines, um, there have been concerns around the super quick timelines for COVID-19 vaccine development. Um, there is actually a worldwide demand right now for an effective vaccine against COVID-19. And so countless resources have been focused all at once on providing this. And this particular joint effort isn't something that's typically um, available for vaccines that have been developed in the past. And so historically, vaccines have taken longer to get through, to get to and through preclinical and clinical trial stages. Um, also, funding hasn't always been available to facilitate vaccine development. But in this case, with COVID-19, there's a lot of resources, including money, that has been made available to develop a vaccine at a fast rate. It really actually strikes me as quite beautiful, what you're talking about, that Never in human history has there been a concerted and simultaneous global effort to solve one disease in particular. And I don't know, it makes me feel oddly emotional. And I just really appreciate the, the clarification on the facts so that we can all feel hopeful about what all of these scientists like you all around the world are doing to contribute to solving this problem. It's great. I think even just looking at the list of, so I've been keeping track of the WHO and the vaccine tracker that they have and just seeing the different um, organisations or institutions worldwide that are currently develop, developing a vaccine. It's just, it's insane. I've, I've, never, I've never seen this before. Like collaborations happen in science, but just not on this scale have I ever seen yeah. that. It's amazing. It, it's sort of the best of what we're capable of as people. Yeah. I, I, I would love to get into your work specifically. And before we get into what you're doing now, I want to know how you wound up here. Because I, I so often get to sit across from people who are wildly impressive and, uh, you know, who carry multi, multi-letter titles as you do being a PhD. And... I want to know how, as a little girl growing up in the UK, how how did your trajectory go? You know, when you were eight or 10, were you obsessed with science in school? Did it come later? Uh, tell tell me about your childhood and, and I'd love to trace, trace through to today. <laughs> oh, um, I would say that as a really, as a really young kid, I just happened to pick things up really quickly. So I was kind mm. of an all-rounder in school. Um, I tended to do generally well in exams. So I mm. think my dad sort of saw that and held onto it and said, okay, this is the, this is the, this is the academic of the family. So let's just try and keep her on that traje trajectory. So um, yeah, he kind of, you know, my dad definitely sort of pushed me to, um, you know, do a lot of maths, um, do a lot of science as well. So we had like, had science books at home. Um, there was this encyclopedia shelf that we still have in my family home. Um, and I just kind of pick out a book and just read stuff on, um, at the time I was really fascinated with photosynthesis, for example. I just thought it was amazing. 
<laughs> that plants could do that. Um, and books on the human body. And that really kind of interested me. Um, and when I was in school, I just, one of the key memories that I have just being fascinated with snails. Um, I don't know why, but I just sit down in the playground and just find a snail and just watch it or pick it up or just, you know, look at it and be like, hey, this is fascinating. This is so different to what I am, but it's still classed I as like a living too. thing. Oh my God. <laughs> no did. one else gets it. <laughs> I was so fascinated by them as a little kid. And there was this enormous snail in our garden and I built it a little garden in a cardboard box. I, I built it a little, you know, microclimate, essentially. I named her Strawberry. I don't know that snails have gender, but I, to me, she was like my little friend. I love that about you. Oh it's God. like such, it's See, such a else, little tiny science nerd thing. I know. Everyone else thought I was weird, <laughs> but it's just nice to have that like <laughs> affirmation from someone else finally after how many years. They're um, so cool. They really are. I mean, we also ate them at home, but mm. it was also really nice to just sort of see them in their natural state, just mm. leaving a trail of slime behind them. I just, I just thought that was fascinating so that's literally one of like the first memories that I have of just being fascinated with animals and just the natural world yeah and then um I don't know I I think just from being in class and the different classes that we had science and maths were really the ones that seemed to interest me the most um mm. I think honestly I, I think it was just learning about the human body just being able to have someone tell me, okay, this is actually what's happening inside your body right now. You can't see it, but this is what's keeping you alive. This is how you're functioning. Mm. I just thought that was fascinating. And so, um, yeah, as I mentioned before in college, I did, um, I did biology, chemistry and English literature for like my A levels. And it was literally on results day. I got my results and I, and that's when I thought, do you know what? I want to do biology, chemistry together. So let's just do biochemistry. Um, so that was pretty much it. Um, I know a lot of people have asked me if if I had any sort of science role models growing up and maybe that kind of got me into science. But honestly, I I was never taught science in the context of the scientists that did the science. Mm. I was just taught about them separately. So it was kind of much later on, when I was sort of like um, a late teenager that I could actually, um, or that I sort of looked up the actual scientists that were behind the the scientific discoveries that I, um, mm. that I had been learning about for how many years. It's so cool. I'm, I'm doing a bunch of research for a project right now on cardiothoracic surgery and learning about the surgeons who've pioneered the heart lung machine and, and stem cell research and all of these things. It's wild because you you read about them talking about their discoveries and you realize these are just people trying to figure out a problem so that less people will die. Yeah. The the pressure, you know, for for so many people in in the science world is uh something I don't think we consider often enough and and as you said that I realized loving science so much. I didn't learn much about scientists as a kid either. It it was more in my adult life trying to figure out, well, who created this and who figured that out? And so that's really, that's really interesting. Did, 
Did your parents really foster your interest in science? Were they interested in science? Do they do anything scientific? What was the sort of experience there? Um, my mom, no. <laughs> um, so she she was a, a primary school teacher, but um, she... Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, w- I wouldn't say that there was much kind of advanced scientific knowledge mm. there um, or interest there. Um, for my dad, he was very much interested in math. So I remember from, you know, my memories just coming home and just sitting down with my dad and him teaching me long division and all of this stuff. And so he was very much the person I'd go to for math stuff. Um mm. Apart from that, um, my brother, not really, my, sis- my sister ended up, um, so she she became a nurse and then she became, she's now a, a, a healthcare visitor. Um, so she's probably the closest person when it comes to sort of science and healthcare. Um, yeah. But I would, yeah, I would just say that I kind of journeyed through it on my own and just mm. found a way to get the knowledge and do the research Um as I could, I just, I couldn't really rely on anyone to help me, especially with the more advanced um, uh, scientific courses that I had. I just had to figure that out on my own, pretty much. Yeah, I'm sure it's a crazy thing as a parent when your child is becoming a neurobiologist and you're just going, I can't, I don't, I don't have it. I don't know what, I don't know what it means, but good on you. (laughs) I remember, um, so literally throughout my whole PhD, no one really asked me what I did. They All they would ask is, oh, how mm. is school going? And I'd be like, it's fine. And that was it. That was the end of the conversation. <laughs> just couldn't. I think I tried multiple times to explain what I did, but I just gave up after, after some time. Mm. But yeah. Mm. Mm. And I have to ask, because we, we share a bit of overlap. One of my dearest friends uh, who actually grew up in the Midwest but grew up because her parents had immigrated here from Nigeria. And I know your parents moved to the UK from Nigeria. And I've, I, I always love hearing about how, how do people's experiences, you know, being first generation somewhere. My dad came to the U S from Canada. It's like, I feel like all of us kids have these, these things that we've inherited, but I like your food better. <laughs> Good I'm, always, I'm always like, how was it? You know, what was your childhood like? Did, did you, did you love being at this sort of intersection of culture and tradition and food? And was it, was it fun for you to, to grow up in the UK, but having family who just moved there, you know, in the generation right above yours? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I feel like I definitely had the best of both. Um, mm. I think just in terms of the access that I have to different things in the UK, that's definitely a positive. Um, mm. But as you said, food, hands down, like one of the best things <laughs> to ever come out of Nigeria. <laughs> it's just, is perfect. Um and yeah, I just, it's, it's kind of, it's really funny because a kind of running joke that's in, I guess, the first gen Nigerian community or African community in general is just around our parents' expectations for us. So mm. like that generation, my like um, parents' generation, it's, there's kind of a running phrase where it's like, 
we only accept that you're a doctor, a lawyer or engineer. Like those are the three options mm-hmm. for you. So just focus <laughs> on your career and that's it, basically. So it's kind of a running joke, but um, yeah, but I mean, that yeah. there there was that expectation. Luckily for my parents, I was inclined to continue academically. So it was fine for them. Um, But yeah, I definitely say just having that, having that Nigerian culture growing up, um, I do think it's made me who I am today. Um, Mm. I just, I find that the culture is very lighthearted, light-spirited, um there's a lot of joy that can be found there um Mm -hmm. if you haven't seen like the Nigerian version of Hollywood which is called Nollywood I recommend you do that because it's it's ridiculously hilarious (laughs) so you just need a laugh (laughs) and need a crazy film to watch just pick one of them that they're just crazy um but yeah just kind of having that light-heartedness um and then just you know from the UK you know, having people like me who are like first gen as well, um, but having been able to have that access to um, mm. to education and resources and stuff like that, you know, I, I definitely appreciate appreciate that as well. That's so cool. I'm so curious. And so, in the beginning of your work, I, I really do want to talk um, a little bit of the science around starfish because you chose to study them. I read because they have these little understood abilities around regeneration. And strangely enough, this the, the book I'm currently reading, Open Heart, by this phenomenal pioneering heart surgeon, Stephen Westby, he talks about doing uh, a certain type of heart surgery on a, on a baby girl in the UK with Alcapa, which is a degenerative heart disease that causes infants to have heart attacks, which can't be reported because they're nonverbal. It's really quite devastating. And essentially, long story longer, this child was dying and he had to excise a piece of her heart. And essentially, you know, he wrote that when he stitched it back up, it looked more like a banana in shape than what a heart is meant to look like. But she survived. And over the next years, they monitored her until she turned 18. And by the time she was a young kid, they were finding on all these scans that her heart had completely healed itself. It had regenerated. It had grown back into a normal size. All of the fibrous scar tissue that had been inside of it when they did this uh, open heart surgery, the scar tissue they found from these multiple heart attacks she'd been having was all gone. And it was, she was one of the first patients on earth who showed that infant and young child stem cells, which occur naturally in their bodies, can regenerate tissue. And that's where so much stem cell therapy has come from, you know, the incredible leaps and bounds we've made. And and I'm reading this last night going, I can't believe I'm going to talk to Esther tomorrow about <laughs> cellular regeneration. What are the chances? So I'm really curious how you found that pathway because so many people who are doing biochemistry, who who are doing neurobiology are, are studying on mice and rats, trying to replicate study to begin to find out what can then go into sheep and then what can potentially come, come all the way up the chain to humans safely. How did you get there? Because we hear mice and rats and we think it's common in scientific study, how do you go from mice rat to starfish in undergrad? Talk to me about how this happened. Um, <clears throat> so 
Um, yeah, so as I mentioned uh, a bit early on, so I, like my neuroscience um, lectures were the ones that really interested me. Mm-hmm. And so um, in our final year of undergrad, we had the option to either write a dissertation, um, like a literature review, or do um, like a final year research project. And it mm-hmm. turns out that the that the lecturer that I had um, for the neuroscience courses, so it was neuroscience and animal physiology. And that's kind mm-hmm. of where the starfish bit came into it. So um, I was just kind of hooked on the neuroscience part. So I kind of submitted in a request to do a final year research project with him. And his particular research lab focuses on starfish and just like that whole family. So like echinoderms, we call them. So like sea urchins, um, mm-hmm. sea cucumbers, brittle stars, like all of that. Um, so, yeah, so so his, so his lab focuses on that. Um, and so I was just coming in to, um, to basically work on a, neuro, a neurobiology project on starfish. Um, wow. Yeah, so just kind of going a bit back. So actually in my... So the summer before I started that project, I actually, um, I wanted to get a taste of what research was like, because I actually wasn't sure if I wanted to go into research. And so um, I was able to do like a summer placement as a research assistant in an investigative and medicine department. And there, as you said, you know, they use mice and rats. And I realised from that, even though it was a very interesting um, thing to do that I just cannot handle mice and rats. I They are just animals that I just can't deal with on a daily basis <laughs> and be comfortable with. I got bitten so many times. I like oh. dropped them because <laughs> I just couldn't handle them properly. And I just, yeah, I just thought this is not for me. Like I don't want to go into a lab on a daily basis and my palms are sweaty and I'm just really nervous about touching oh. an animal that I'm meant to work with for three to four years. So I thought, yeah, that's not really an option. Let me just go with an animal that doesn't fly, doesn't bite, doesn't (laughs) move very fast. That was literally my criteria and starfish fit all of that for me, which is good. Um, So, yeah, yeah. So I didn't really kind of seek out a project on starfish specifically. It just happened Mm. that the neuroscience lecturer... um, that I did my final year project with his lab focuses specifically on um, starfish and related um, species. Mm. So they kind of found you. Yes, they did. My babies. <laughs> so, so cute. oh, it's so sweet to see the way your face lights up. You oh, really, so- <laughs> there's such like love there for I them. Do, I do. Yeah, I got. Um, yeah, I mean, four years, four years working with those with those guys. Yeah. It was it was good. It was good. So can you tell us a little bit about what you learned and and discovered about those regenerative abilities in starfish? What what does that mean for those of us who've never worked with them or learned about this? Uh, So the thing is, I can't say much about that because, okay, so when we generally talk about why starfish are like an interesting model system, um, we generally say, you know, something like regeneration is something of interest. Mm-hmm. Um, but that wasn't something that I was specifically working on um, in my mm. project. But we did have like collaborating um, labs who, so they were focusing on brittle stars. So they were um, sort of within the family of echinoderms. 
And um, like brittle stars, they, they, you know, have like multiple arms and they also regenerate their arms as well. And they do it at a super fast rate. So I think starfish, I want to say one to two months, I think, if I can remember, and um, that it takes them to okay. like regenerate their arms. But with brittle stars, it takes a much shorter time. So it's much wow. easier for you to, to actually sort of look into... Um, into like regeneration because you can quickly cut their arms and they can regenerate. And so I know there are groups that are looking at um, the sort of regulation of different genes and how that changes when a brittle star's arm is regenerating. And from that, it may give you some idea of which genes are involved in this regeneration process. Um, mm. But that's something that's um, that's currently being done at the moment. So can I ask a question there? So if someone's examining as you just said, what genes might be involved in regeneration in, in brittle stars, would that, in theory, eventually, hopefully, I suppose, lead to the option to do gene therapy on a human being who'd been in an accident and lost an arm or maybe lost in a, you know, a musculoskeletal accident, lost a piece of lung or liver, although I do know the human liver can regenerate, so huzzah, there's, there's a key to something. But is the idea to eventually be able to toggle our genes in therapy to regrow something that we've lost rather than have to wait for a transplant or rather than someone having to be, you know, a lifelong amputee? Is, is that why those areas of study are being pursued? I would say that the, I would say that the primary reason for those studies is mainly around just trying to get the scientific knowledge. So to really understand in this particular system, so this particular animal, this is what mm. happens and this is what we think is contributing to their ability to fully regenerate their arms. Mm. And so that's kind of the main thing, just trying to get that scientific knowledge. Um, mm. I think, you know, starfish or brittle stars in humans are very different and, you know, humans are arguably more complex than starfish. Yes. Um, so even if a specific gene was found to be important in regeneration, there's no mm. guarantee that in humans that have a more sort of complex system that that would be the same thing. Um, mm. Also, there are like other different like interconnecting genes um, that are kind of working in tandem. So it would be hard to kind of deconstruct all of that and then find mm -hmm. the best kind of gene therapy that would allow someone's arm to fully regenerate. So short answer, no, <laughs> but you never know. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's too far off in terms of species difference, but any of these sort of fields of discovery could lead to something that maybe not in our generation, but maybe the one or two after us could, could be a game changer. Yeah, for sure. I, I read that you talked about having a career goal of building a profile that contributes to the discovery and development of therapeutics for unmet medical needs. And that's, that's what it makes me think of is, is where we could go in the future problems we could solve as we have more and more information and I'm curious, currently, when you refer to unmet medical needs, is there something specific that stands out to you? Do you have particular medical needs that are a priority as a scientist? Um, 
have they changed at all since the outbreak of COVID-19? Where, where do we find you today in terms of thinking about those things? Yeah, it's a bit of a hard one because working in the pharmaceutical industry, there is much I can't say about the specifics of what we do mm-hmm. just from like a confidential aspect of it. Um, but I think for me, and it's probably why I've enjoyed my time so far in the pharmaceutical industry, is that we get to um, we get to learn about lots of different diseases because mm-hmm. there are lots of projects that are coming our way to um, to create antibodies for, and so in that respect, I wouldn't say that I have a specific um, unmet medical need that really stands out to me. Um, because out of the ones that I have been able to um, do research on and be involved in, for me, they've all been equally as important. Um, mm. And so it's really hard for me to kind of pinpoint one. Um, mm. But what I do find, and I mean, that's kind of why I switched from um, or transitioned into the pharmaceutical industry from academia, because I wanted to use my skills um, to hopefully contribute to um to, you know, creating therapeutics that do meet um, unmet medical needs. Um, but yeah, I guess what, what, I, what I definitely have been very interested in is just trying to understand the strategies used by different scientists to actually try and meet those unmet needs. So it's mm. really weird just kind of hearing or reading about the different projects in our department and reading the strategy behind how they're making how they want to make this antibody what way they want it to act and so how they're going to engineer it in order to make it have this specific action um mm. in a, in a disease model i just for me that just find that i just find that really really interesting and you get to see lots of different ones based on the different diseases that we're trying to to target i'm fascinated as well and i uh I was reading the Bill Bryson's new book, The Body, is so fascinating for anyone who's interested in science but doesn't carry the the number of degrees that so many of you who are professional scientists do. And one of the things that he talked about when he started getting into disease treatment and prevention was the crisis that we're facing in that the pharmaceutical industry is creating far less medications now than they used to um, in terms especially of antibiotics and antibiotic resistance. And as he was explaining the data around what that means, uh, how bacteria is changing, what we need to find, I realized in real time, you know, reading the book and, and partially listening to it on audio as well, I had this moment one of the days when I was listening to him and I thought, wow, I, like so many people, have a certain amount of distrust in the pharmaceutical industry because there have been so many stories that have come to light about, you know, abusive practices. You look at what happened with OxyContin and um, the overprescription of opioids and what it's doing, you know, here in America and, and really around the world to people. And and I and then I thought about it for a second and I thought, oh, but when Pitt created the polio vaccine, it changed the world. You know, it saved lives. My my grandfather was alive to see the difference in that. 
I, I think about the the sort of generational breakthroughs that have been provided to us by pharma. The fact that between two and three million lives annually are saved because of vaccines, yet there is this sort of permeation of distrust, uh, some of which comes from abuse of power, which we see in every industry, not just the pharmaceutical one. But a lot of it is also coming from really targeted disinformation campaigns that we're seeing, you know, coming from shady foreign actors. How do you deal with that? As a person who works in pharmaceuticals, how do you combat the misinformation? And actually, maybe before you tell us about how you deal with it in in present time, can you tell us why you did decide to go from academia into pharmaceuticals? What what's the what's the potential and the hope that the pharmaceutical space gave to you to pull you there as a researcher? Cuz I think that would help some people understand how it works as well. I would say for me it was really just trying to apply my skills into a department or organization that was actually going to make that well whose focus was around trying to make actual drugs mm. and um you know there are different there are different stages to the drug discovery process um mm-hmm. you kind of have to first of all find a drug target um so that can be a specific protein in your body or it can be a virus mm. or anything that you want to create a drug against or to um and then there's the whole um the whole department around trying to discover and develop that drug and for me i found i found that really really interesting um mm. because i don't know i i guess i guess for me i've always even growing up i guess i always wanted to have a career where i would hopefully directly impact the lives of others in a positive way and i think just you know seeing the different drugs that are out that are available that do amazing things that do help people that have prolonged the lives of so many people i think i wanted to be part of that and you know mm. i had the scientific expertise to to be able to um to be one of the people who who's involved in you know discovering or developing drugs and so I definitely wanted to be in that space and so even though I was working with starfish and using my skills to to focus on that um luckily I was able to transfer those lab skills into where I am now and I really think that it's important that people kind of understand that um Yes, there are decisions that are made in the pharmaceutical mm. industry with commercial and everything. But in terms of the scientists who are there like on the ground doing the research, doing the work, you know, scientists can spend years on one particular project. Um, mm-hmm. It may not ever see the light of day. Um, it may not get to clinical trials. It may not get um, be approved. But they can literally spend years of their life, of their lives trying to discover um or design discover and develop a drug that could have a certain um hopefully beneficial effect on patients and i just mm. think it's it there should be that or I'm, I'm trying to stress that for scientists um that's kind of our goal we're not really you know here to just kind of push something down the pipeline and just hope that you know it does something in people it's really about taking the time 
and using our skills and knowledge to really create something that could one day, maybe 10 years, 15 years from where we are now, one day, you know, save a number of people. And that's really a lot of so now that I am in the pharmaceutical industry, I work with these scientists. I am a scientist. I work with these scientists every day. And that's literally mm-hmm. the motivation. It's literally just, can we create a drug that will do this specific thing in patients? Can we actually meet this medical need? And that's really the motivation mm. for what we do. Mm. It sounds to me like there needs to be a real separation uh, in the eyes of the public between the industry itself and really any industry and any titans of industry who, you know, are the 0.1% of the 1% of the 1% and, and the everyday folks who are contributing. And I, I think about that truth, you know, even in the entertainment industry, I, I constantly am trying to stress to people that the folks working on set are like a bunch of hardworking people who have nothing to do with what's happening at the top. And and as you were explaining that, I was thinking very much about what the ecosystem of a set feels like. And while we're doing vastly different things, it feels energetically a bit like the way you're describing your lab. You know, a bunch of incredible scientists who are dedicating themselves day in and day out to solving something. It's that that group energy toward creation um, whether it's the creation of a piece of art or the creation of a, of a new medical technology is, is really special, you know, dare I even say kind of magical to be a part of and, and often so removed from the way that the product itself gets monetized or distributed. And I think it's important for people to remember that and, and to hold scientists in the highest esteem because you go into science to create and save, you know, save lives. It's it's certainly an honorable choice to make. Oh, stop it. You're going to make me cry. <laughs> no, but I mean it. I, I just, oh, I think you. it's so incredible. And, you know, I, I'm curious, you know, you talked about your family and, and sort of this best of both worlds experience experience that you had, you know, growing up in the UK and also being a member of a family who immigrated from Nigeria. You know, you you mentioned that as a child, you were learning about scientific innovation, but not often the scientists who had done it. And I I know, uh, being part of the National Women's History Museum coalition here in the US, so often women have been erased from scientific advancement, you know, folks didn't know that it was a woman who wrote the code that landed Apollo on the moon for so long. And I think about in particular how much, uh, not just the innovation of women, but the innovation of scientists of color has been lift, left out of the books. And in that both and space of your identities and their intersectionality and your place in a world that revolves around STEM, there is such a push to get more women in STEM. There has been such public acknowledgement of the lack of opportunity for black people in STEM and Latinx people in STEM, and the list goes on for folks of color. May I ask about what your sort of experience is, both in your personal identity and your identity as a scientist, in that big science pharma universe? Do you feel 
headway is being made? Do you feel supported? Do you feel the responsibility to be an advocate? Is that a lot of weight to carry? You know, what is what is Esther's science world looking like today? <laughs> it's very complicated. It's very complicated. Um, mm. <clears throat> so I would say that there's definitely similarities between academia and the pharma world when it comes to mm. the progress that has or hasn't been made. Um, mm. What I have found um, in both settings is that, um, as you said, there has been a push for when it comes to gender. And um, I see it even, you know, now in the pharmaceutical industry, in leadership positions, you know, there's, I mean, what more work can be done, but there's generally a good mm. representation of women in those positions. But when it comes to, you know, different people of colour, um, it's pretty much non-existent at those leadership positions. Um, in lower in in lower positions, um, more junior positions, you do get um, a bit of representation, different ethnicities. Mm. But as you get to those leadership position, positions, um, you don't you don't see that at all. And uh, that's something I've noticed. And actually, I've kind of been, you know, as as you kind of um, mentioned, I have knowingly or unknowingly um, taken on this role as a STEM advocate and trying to um, encourage the uh, representation of all people of different ethnicities within science and making sure that they're visible and that they are occupying those leadership positions as well and able to make important decisions because mm. I can speak as much as I want but you know in my you know when I was in academia and now in the pharmaceutical industry I'm not at a position where I can make those important decisions on how departments are run what we need to do the different strategies the different policies that need to be in place to mm. you know make the environment more inclusive to you know, make sure that when it comes to um, recruitment practices, that they're recruiting, um, you know, diverse applicant pools or that they're having diverse applicant pools. These these are things that I can speak on, but I don't have the power to actually make those things happen. Mm. And um, yeah, you know, I've, I've tried to use my voice for that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's hard because I came to the realisation um a few weeks ago, actually, and this was when I was talking to um, someone in a, in a leadership position, um, a white man, and we we're just discussing things about, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion. And then I literally thought that I had never been in a pharmaceutical industry. I had never considered that I would ever work towards a leadership position, mainly because I just didn't see anyone like myself in that position. Mm. And it was kind of, it was weird to make that realisation because I've always been someone to say, you know what, yes, you know, there may not be any representation in certain spaces, but I'm strong enough to pursue whatever I want to pursue and whatever goal I want to, I want to pursue, I'm going to make it happen. That's just the way it is. But I hadn't realised that I had actually just excluded myself from the running unknowingly mm. just because I couldn't see someone like myself in that position and it's kind of a catch-22 because I'm also the one advocating that we need to have more people in those leadership positions but when you don't see people like yourself in that position then you mm. kind of put yourself out of the racing to actually be someone who can 
hopefully work towards being in that in that position. And it's just like a horrible cycle when it comes to representation um, and just general systemic inequality and racism within the science community. And, you know, it doesn't just stop at representation, just in terms of the environment and making it inclusive, because you can recruit as many Black scientists as you want. You can recruit as many Indigenous and Latinx scientists as you want. But if you have an environment in place that makes them feel like they are the outsiders, that their voices aren't heard, then, mm-hmm. and what we have seen is that they then transition to another career path and because they just don't want to be in that environment day to day. And I've been lucky enough to the scientific environments that I have been in, I've been lucky enough to not have them, um, to not kind of be faced with the things that other people have been faced with, the different aggressions, like really horrible things that other people have experienced. I wouldn't mm. say that I've not experienced any kind of aggression or microaggressions in the workplace at all, but compared to what I have heard from other people, um, mine hasn't been that way at all. But that, with that being said, though, um, I remember the first scientific conference that I ever went to. This was my first year as a PhD student. And, um, you know, I went, it was like the, the reception, welcome reception. And I was in a group of um, predominantly white men scientists or sort of early career researchers. And one of the one of the researchers, he was talking about the field research that he was doing in the Caribbean. And he referred to the Caribbean locals as gorillas. And then he just started laughing and then automatically remembered, like looked my way and was like, okay, I didn't realize that there was a black person here for me to say these things to. And it's like that one thing, like nothing like that has ever happened to me before, but that one thing has really like stuck with me. And I can honestly, till this day, like remember how I felt at that time. Mm -hmm. And there weren't any policies in place um, with the like um, conference organizers on where I could report this to, who I could talk to about this. So I literally just kind of left the conversation and just kind of tried to erase that from my mind. But there wasn't anyone that I can talk to about it. And it's like, that's one thing that happened to me that I can till this day still remember. And I can't even imagine what other people have gone through in the scientific Mm -hmm. community that have made them feel that they don't belong there people don't think that they are as good a scientist as them. And Mm. this is something that, you know, we definitely need to recognise as an issue and then also try to to fight against as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, honestly, I'm a bit speechless. What you said about not simply recruiting but changing environments feels incredibly important because in my own proximal experience to being the only one in the room, I know what it is to be the only woman in the room and sort of be seen as a token and as an interloper and maybe an invader. And, you know, maybe is she, you know, quote unquote, cool enough to be one of the guys, which really just means Will I giggle uncomfortably when you say really misogynistic, inappropriate things? And it's exhausting. And for you to be put in a position in a room full of scientists uh, with your accreditations and all of the things, and to have someone so flippantly make a remark that 
like that to you feels so deeply cutting to me because it can't be unsaid or unheard. And the experiences of people of color in environments like that, the experiences of women who are in these sort of toxically misogynistic workplaces, once someone has communicated what they think of you in a really disparaging way, you know it. Yeah. And it doesn't go away. And it affects how you feel returning to that space. So if rather than being a conference, which unacceptable in a conference environment, obviously, but if someone in your lab had said that to you, how are you supposed to go to that lab every day? Exactly. You know, we, we need to create, as you said, better systems. But I think the, the complexity of where we find ourselves today when we're acknowledging these needs but the systems don't yet exist, is you, if you do put yourself in that leadership position, you're then going to become, even if your lab is diverse, if you move up the ladder and you become one of the people who's making decisions, there will most certainly be a time when you are the only one at the table. And then what does that mean for your experience every day? You know, I, I think it requires us as a society to have really realistic conversations, not just about who's in the room, but what is their experience in the room and what is the emotional labor we're requiring them to do to be there? Yeah. And how do we change that? You know, I, I remember in a very toxic environment that I was working in for a time before I actually finally quit the job, I just said, I want to be able to just come to work the way that guy does. I just want to come to work and do my job. I don't want to have to come to work and navigate a minefield every single day. And then once I'm to the other side of it, sweating and exhausted, have a bunch of people be like, well, we didn't know if you'd survive that one. Yeah. You know, it's exhausting. And, and again, my understanding and my exhaustion is only proximal. But I really encourage anyone listening to this conversation to think about what your relation to this kind of experience is. And if you go, oh, me too, I've had that too. I've had a version of that too. I'm exhausted too. Who can you talk to about it? Who is your support system? And if you're one of the people who's been in a seat of greater sort of power where you've never had that experience, perhaps take the conversation and let it make you a more considerate coworker so that when you see something or hear something, you say something. Because allyship, whether to women or, you know, the black and BIPOC community, it requires action. And I know that that's something that you've talked about. And, and I know I keep talking about her, but it's why, like, you know, I, I have such an affinity for Nigerian culture because of my dear friend, Lovey. And she's always like, I think you're a little Nigerian on the inside. <laughs> she's like, nobody eats more food at my table than you, you know, and we well, giggle a lot it. about it. But in, but, in, <laughs> but in real talk, you know, that's, that's our joyfulness that in a, in a comical way, uh, names, our friendship, which is rooted in being accomplices for each other, you know? And when you have people who truly like, not just stand up, you know, with you or behind you or to support you, but who like roll with you into the thick of whatever you're experiencing, 
That to me is the kind of action energy that we need to put out in the world. So how do you see allies taking action? What does it mean to you for someone to be a true accomplice? I'm I'm curious if there are answers to that question that you can share because I know there's people who are listening to us talk about this who are saying, okay, but what's something I can learn to do? What's an appropriate action for me to take? People people want to show up for each other. I, I really do believe that. So for you, what what feels effective in, in your opinion? I mean, it can be quite complex and it depends person to person. Um, mm. The first thing I would 100% say is just educate yourself um Mm. there are lots of resources out there countless resources books um videos anything out there that really explains you know what it's like to be um a person of color or whatnot Mm. and just trying to navigate your way through not just science but the world um Mm. and just educating yourself on the things that we have to go through Um, will definitely be the first step. And I found, particularly in the science community, and what I just can't get my head around is, you know, you have a lot of scientists who are like great scholars. They can find any book, any resource, anything on a scientific Mm. topic. But as soon as it comes to conversations around, um, you know, systemic inequality and racism and different things, then all of a sudden it's a case of, I just just don't know where where to look. I don't know where to get this information. And it's like... (laughs) You can use your skills that you already have to try and educate yourself. And there are countless resources out there. So that would definitely be the first thing. Um, the second thing I would I would say that's really effective for me is actually just. I found that I can I can count true friends as allies, um, not just someone who kind of shows up and says, oh, tell me about a time when someone was racist to you. Oh, that's terrible. Okay, let's see what we can do about it. But someone who actually sees me as a human being that's multifaceted and we've kind of built that rapport Mm. that goes beyond my trauma, that goes beyond the things that I've had Mm. done to me in the society. Because yes, we want to address these things, but also we don't want to address these things 100% of the time. We want to have time to be human beings, to be who we are. And so I think, you know, if if different people want to be allies, you know, start with your friends, start with people that you already have, um, you know, that foundation, that friendship of, that foundation of friendship with, and then see what you can, you know, you will see quite, quite quickly that they will want to open up to you and let mm. you know the ways in which you can help them in their unique situations. Um, another thing I think is really important and one thing that I've mentioned to countless people, um, just because a lot of conversations right now are around um, or in the science community have been around sort of systemic racism and what we can do in our different departments. Um, I just found that a lot of the conversations is around, okay, let's sit down and let's get the black person in the room to tell us the horrible things that have happened and so we can Mm. all feel really horrible about it and then that's it basically um I've kind of spoken out about that and said what would actually be more effective is if everyone in the room not just the black person or person of color 
if everyone in the room really sat down and thought about a time where they had witnessed someone else um, mm. being discriminated against or, um, you know, someone who has endured some kind of aggression or microaggression in the workplace. And, you mm. know, I just find that being, instead of being passive, if you're active about trying to identify these things, then you can then be in a position when you do see these things happening to, as you said, speak up, speak out. Yeah. And I think it's really, really important to, um, you know, I've, I've been in positions where, you know, someone has said something, you know, a bit weird to me and I've sort of been taken back. And there is the stereotype of, you know, the angry black woman. So in the workplace, particularly, my my go-to is just to not show any emotion because I don't want to be classed in that way even though if mm. someone says something inappropriate to me I should quite rightly say something um mm -hmm. about it and but so that puts the emotional labor on you again that forces you to constantly be a teacher rather than simply a co-worker yeah that means you don't get to just go to work the way exactly. everyone who doesn't face your particular brand of oppression or discrimination does and exactly it's immensely taxing yeah it's yeah something it's really horrible. something that i two pieces of advice that i've been given which in my sort of cohort of women we've talked about you know whether it's a gender issue or, or a race issue or an issue of you know um discrimination against the queer community is when something someone says something a bit off to go oh i'm so sorry i don't i don't believe i understood you could you tell me a little more about what you mean <laughs> yeah and it's an investigative question that will often force someone to explain that they're being deeply inappropriate, which I think for all of us to be armed with is important. And, and secondarily, something that feels really important, especially for people listening at home who look like me, is to get conscious that you're not asking, you know, your friends who are black or Latinx, or the list goes on and on through the BIPOC community, through any community that experiences any kind of oppression simply for being who they are, who is amazing, who they cannot change, is to be clear about not trafficking in, in trauma porn. You know, not, as you said, having a meeting in your lab and saying, you know, Esther, tell us about your experiences, What you know, in a room full of folks who look like me. That's not appropriate. And it's on us to understand that it's not the responsibility of an oppressed person, a person who experiences racism, a person who experiences discrimination, to relive and re-traumatize themselves through reliving their traumas, to educate us on the ways that they've suffered. Just believe people. When people say, yes, this is a discriminatory system, maybe don't have your first reaction be, well, tell me how you've been discriminated against. Maybe make your first reaction, train yourself to have your first reaction be, what would you suggest I could assist in doing about it? Is there, do you have an idea? Is there something I can do? How can I be of support to you? You know, make, make the emotional labor your work in fixing the problem, not the demand that someone explain to you repeatedly how bad the problem is. Yeah, 100%. I think that these are the kinds of conversations that I hope, you know, can feel 
uh, open and free enough where anyone can can say truly what they need and also where our audience gets to go home thinking I've learned a bit about how to support my colleagues and my community that's that's always my goal and I want to just thank you for being frank about you know sharing and also um I hope that that doesn't feel like the kind of work I'm also trying to encourage people not to ask you to do. Uh, it's yeah. it's, fine. it's like, um, yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, for me, I'm, I'm kind of the person, if I want to sh- share something, I will, if I don't, mm-hmm. I won't. And you can't convince yeah. me otherwise. Um, yeah. so yeah. I do find when I, when I am in a, a space that I consider safe and it's appropriate, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm someone who's happy to, you know, share different things. And especially if it will enlighten people who are who actually want to do the work, then mm. definitely a hundred percent, yeah. Cool, thank you. Something that I've really loved that you've been doing is also encouraging people to do some self work. As we've all been stuck at home, you know, the COVID lockdown has been immensely challenging for people. There's also surveys running around the globe, which have been kind of lovely to me to see in terms of the social science data of huge numbers of people saying that they think that this lockdown has made them a better person. And you did an Instagram takeover not long ago with ASAP Science, who I'm so obsessed with. They're great. And, I love them. Oh my God. They're just so cool. And, Wait, can I and tell you, were you something? Real- Sorry. Yes. Well, please. Oh my God. I want to know everything. Okay. So, um, so I did a podcast with them a while back and, um, the topic of starfish sperm came up. <laughs> that was the wrong time yeah, to take like, a drink of water. I was like, maybe I should wait until you finish drinking. <laughs> um, but yeah, basically I was kind of talking about one of the times where I um, like didn't inject a starfish like the way I should. And so I kind of hit a male starfish like gonads. And so Uh-oh. I put the starfish back in the water and then it was just cloudy with starfish sperm. And so actually myself and Greg and Mitch from ASAP Science, we have a WhatsApp group called Starfish Sperm. <laughs> oh my God. And I just smile anytime I see a notification coming up and just like, yes. Perfect. That is honestly, <laughs> like, I don't need to be invited to some fancy dinner party, but if I could be a fly on the wall in that <laughs> science chat, I would just faint with excitement. I'm curious from this incredible point at which we're meeting, albeit digitally, as a woman with many degrees and who's been a researcher and who works in this incredible innovative lab. And, you know, you look back at your career and your life and there's obviously much to come, but from this point at which I imagine so many young girls look at you and think like, whoa, I wonder if I could do what she does. Is there any advice that you would give to your younger self or to other young girls out there who look up to you? Yeah, I would say my first thing would be to not have, um, not have a definitive plan that you can't be swayed from I think Mm. the way my life has worked out in science is that and I think it's generally for people in science um whether it's applying for different positions applying for grants um trying to transition into different industries 
you will be faced with a lot of rejections. It's just how it Mm. is in science. And so one thing that's helped me is to, you know, yes, I am ambitious. Yes, there are things that I want to achieve, but I also, you know, and I try my hardest. I make sure that I prepare. But, you know, I also kind of let life happen as well. And there are some things that are out of your control. There are things that you can't change. And to not be put down on that and to think that you're not a good scientist because you've had X amount of rejections. The best Mm. scientists have had the most rejections, um, to be quite frank. So just, yeah, don't think that a rejection means failure because it doesn't at all. And if you just keep going, if you keep, keep on, you will find that. And I found for myself anyway, that different opportunities have presented themselves um, in ways that I had never thought possible, but they've, you know, I look back now and I'm really grateful for the route that I had taken and the person that mm. I am now because of what I've gone through. So that would definitely be something that I would, um, that I would share with, um, with others who want to um, pursue maybe STEM or just any kind of um, career, to be honest. Um, another thing I would say based on my experience is if you can try to, have mentors or a mentor who can really help you navigate Mm. your way through your career and or life. Um, I haven't had a mentor um, at all. And I can look back and see that in key stages of my career or education, um, I would have loved, it would have been like critical to Mm. have someone who could have, um, you know, shared advice, um, shared you know ways in which I could improve in order to you know make me more competitive for whatever I was trying to apply for and you know being a first gen um scientist you know I I didn't have uh, parents or family members who knew much about the scientific community and how to navigate in that and so a lot of it had to just be from trial and error and you know If you can have a mentor, if you can find someone who is, you know, invested in making you the best version of yourself, both like professionally and personally, I would recommend that you try to find that as soon as possible. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because there's such a conversation now about mentorship. And when I was starting in my career, that was not a conversation either. That was not something I had access to. And I think about how transformational that would have been. So that's my roundabout way of saying I second your advice to people uh, and I would have wanted that as well. I think I think a sounding board and, and some guidance is so incredibly important and I think it's actually one of the things that makes cross-generational friendship, especially for women, so important because we go through these stages of transition and having someone who's come just before you to ask questions of is so invaluable yeah no it's, so, it's actually on my to-do list to actually find a mentor <laughs> no. yeah I love yeah. that so one of my very favorite things to ask every single person who comes on the show as the podcast is titled work in progress is whether it's professional personal uh pharmaceutical (laughs) what feels like a work in progress in your life right now do you know I think I'd go personal with that um Mm. I'd say just trying to like build or maybe rebuild 
the confidence that I once had. Um, mm. I So during my transition from academia to the pharmaceutical industry and, you know, why I mentioned about rejections and stuff like that, um, that was like a really, really difficult time for me. Um, I, I was like writing my thesis. So I, I spent months, um, literally like 14 hours a day, just like writing, you know, writing, eating, mm. going to sleep, writing, eating, going to sleep. And while I was doing that, also trying to apply for different positions and getting rejected. So then it was like writing, get rejected, eat, sleep, writing, rejection, get uh, eat, eat and sleep. And, um, going through that for a couple of months, it really just kind of got me to a level where I actually didn't feel like I was worthy of being a scientist because I had mm. all of these rejections and, um, and kind of going through that, it kind of left me. So when I had actually finished my PhD a couple of months later, it kind of left me kind of feeling very numb and just mm. not really confident about who I was. And even when I was able to, so pretty much soon after I finished my PhD, I got the job in the pharmaceutical industry. And even when I started in that position, I can honestly say it took like a year into that position that I actually started to feel more like myself. It had taken so long for me to get to a stage where I felt like I belonged in science again. And mm. I just feel like I'm definitely in a better place than I was a year ago, two years ago. Um, but there's still much work that needs to, that needs to be done. Cause I know how I was three, four, five years ago. Um, and I've, I've progressed like so much from where I was then, but in terms of my confidence levels, it's kind of <laughs> gone the opposite way. And so it's just taken time, but just, you know, making sure that, you know, I am practicing self-care. I am mm. making sure that I'm kind to myself. I'm always the kind of person to, um, you know, be kind to others and, and encourage others. But when it comes to speaking on myself, then I'm super hypercritical. And so it's just trying to change that and just, making making sure that I know that I am good enough to be in science I'm a good enough scientist I deserve to be here but I would say that that's definitely a work in progress I'm getting there um but I, I feel like there's still um work to be done I hold that and also I fully I fully get it I think that that's a lifelong journey and I think that just when you build up a little more confidence in one arena. You you find a challenge with it in another. I don't know what the secret is there, but I will say it, it reminds me not to be discouraged when I hear people who I'm so impressed by and amazed by say that they deal with that too. I go, oh, okay, okay. Well, maybe maybe that just means we're all hyper conscientious and aware and thus a little more um vulnerable to self-doubt but i i certainly hope as an immense fan of yours that you know i can be in the cheering section thank you yeah and yeah. I, I i you know i'm trying to be more transparent about that because i think um so actually i started um so i kind of 
more consistently started using Twitter like two years ago. And that was really mm. because because I had moved to the pharmaceutical industry and I couldn't really speak on my research um, in, because of the conf- confidentiality. Um, I kind of thought, OK, this mm. is the perfect time to still try and be part of the science community online and still have a voice there. And, you know, over the past two years, um, you know, I've tried to kind of be a positive voice and, you know, have the jokes, have the laughs, um, communicate with the science community, Mm. share different things. But, you know, I'm definitely trying now to be more transparent about, you know, when I don't have good days and not just kind of have it as, you know, everything's amazing. These are all the positive things that are happening, but just be real because, as you said, you know, there are people coming up who look to certain people and I don't want to give the false impression that you know everyone Mm -hmm. is okay all of the time so yeah yeah, just trying to be more transparent about that yeah I I think a lot of people have fear around being vulnerable that it might somehow signal a weakness or or make people lean out but vulnerability in my experience always makes people lean in it offers people such relief because everyone gets to go, oh, thank God, you too. How are you dealing with this? And what are your coping strategies? And how are you taking care of yourself? And and suddenly you get into these arenas where you do, as you said earlier, feel safe to have deeper conversations that are just more real. So I, I really want to thank you for coming and doing that with me today. It means a lot. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, this has been great. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Clarion Anatomy. Anatomy.